I'm going to read the story that begins in Acts 9, verse 1, and I'm going to read it uh, till its conclusion in verse 31. So Acts 9, verse 31 is where I'd like you to turn in your Bible. All right. We made an executive decision that for the next baby dedication, all infants will be issued with Valium before we start. <laughs> Either they need it or I do, one or the other, and uh, that'll be good. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Follow along as I read from God's Word. This rather extended story. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see, that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call him the name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, There was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. 
not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul and his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down into Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. We have been for about seven months in the book of Acts, and we are tracing the story here of the first church, and we're looking at some of the people and the sermons and the events, the miracles, the values that set the direction for this early church. And so far we've seen how the book flows from, from Jesus' command in Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And from a human standpoint, at least as the book of Acts unfolds, this chapter that we just read may be the most important event, the conversion of Saul. Saul, this man known later in the book and known to most of us as uh, Paul, this story of his conversion is actually told three times in the book of Acts. Once here, uh, Luke narrates it, and then twice when Paul is giving his testimony or a defense of himself before the government. It's an important story, but it's a surprising story, too. How can it be? How can it be that Saul, the persecutor, who begins this chapter in raging hatred against the followers of Jesus, himself becomes a follower of Jesus? In fact, he becomes the greatest missionary and theologian ever in the history of the world. How can that be? Well, I wonder if you noticed that the story begins and ends with Saul leaving Jerusalem. Did you notice that? The beginning, he leaves Jerusalem because he's got letters of extradition. He's going to go to Damascus, and he's going to find anybody who's a follower of Jesus. Maybe some of the Jews that have fled from Jerusalem, they went to Damascus. Saul has persecuted them in Jerusalem, and now he's going to get the, the, the ones he left out, the ones he couldn't find. So he gets these letters of extradition and he goes to Damascus and he's going to find uh, uh, these believers in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem so that he can uh, put them on trial for blasphemy and vote, yes, execute them, they deserve it. That's the first reason. For the, when Saul left Jerusalem, that's why he left the first time. The second time he left, though, he has become one of those followers of Jesus and is running away because they're going to arrest him and put him on trial and execute him for his faith in Christ. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen? Russell Moore was once uh, talking to Carl Henry. Carl Henry was a, uh, a renowned theologian in the, the 20th century. And they were talking about the future of the church and, and uh, some of the concerns they had about the next generation of Christians and, and whether or not the, the church was producing the leaders that it would need for the future. And they asked Carl Henry uh, what he thought. And, and he said, of course there's hope for the next generation of evangelicals. But the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. They are probably still pagans. Who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to be the great apostle to the Gentiles? 
Who knew that God would raise up a C.S. Lewis or a Chuck Colson? They were unbelievers who, once saved by the grace of God, were mighty warriors for the faith. And Russell Moore says, I I remember Carl uh, Carl Henry saying that, and then this came to mind. He wrote this. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with a Darwin fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march right now. The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic right now. This is a story of wonder. It's as important as it is surprising. How can it be that that Saul of Tarsus would become a follower of Jesus? That's one of the lessons that this conversion story tells us. There are things, though, that happen in this chapter that are unlike anything that has ever happened before or ever since. But there are also in this story, and that's what I want to show you this morning, there are also in this story elements that are true for everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. This is a conversion story, and there's some unique things here, but there are also some things that should be true of all of us who name the name of Christ. And I want to surface them this morning because I want you to think about your own story as a follower of Jesus. We live in a country, of course, if you ask most Americans whether or not they're Christians, they'll say, yes, I'm a Christian, of course I'm a Christian. What do they mean when they say that? Well, some people mean I'm a Christian in the sense that I'm not Jewish. I'm not a Muslim, or I'm not a Hindu, or I'm a Christian in the sense that I believe in God, or I live in America, or I think the Bible is a good book to read. Luke had something more in mind, though, when it comes to identifying yourself as a follower of the way. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. What's here that is is true of all of us who are followers of Jesus? Before we look more specifically at the text, I want to tell you something that you should know, you should realize. There are, there are a lot of people who, when they read this story, want to try to find some psychological explanation for what happens here. Mostly they're, they're driven by a bias against the supernatural. And when the story says that the risen Lord Jesus appealed, appeared to Saul, well, that doesn't quite fit into a bias against the supernatural, <laughs> Uh, the fact that he's risen and the fact that he's the Lord really kind of ruins that worldview. So there's been a lot of effort over the years to try to explain this somehow from a psychological or, or a social um, um, viewpoint. John Stott mentions one of these. A number of years ago, a book was written by a man by the name of William Sargent. It was called The Battle for the Mind. William Sargent had done some work with um, uh, World War II veterans who had suffered combat exhaustion. And he had also reread through a lot of the work of the psychologist Pavlov, you know, the guy with the ringing bell and the dogs. And he wrote this book called The Battle for the Mind to talk about conversion and brainwashing. And in his book, he described all the sorts of things that you can do in order to make somebody believe something that before they would have absolutely repudiated. And in the course of his writing, he brings up this story and he says, well... Saul, he was probably dehydrated, you know, hot sun, long trip. It takes about a week to get to Damascus from Jerusalem. 
was probably hot and tired, and he was so excited. I mean, he, he just had this religious fervor and this nervous excitement. And then, while well, he fasted, and if you haven't eaten for three days, you'll do anything anybody tells you. So Ananias comes and is kind to him. Of course, Saul was convinced that, that uh, Jesus was the Messiah. The problem with that view is that, that there are, I'm sure brainwashing happens. I know what happens. But in this story, there's no suggestion of any of those elements of psychological warfare at work. There's no medication in this story. There's no repeated trauma. There's no special techniques. Saul doesn't respond to Jesus when he sees him like a robot, like he's in a trance. Uh, he asks an actual intelligent question. Um, uh, Jesus hasn't blanked out his personality. There's no Stockholm Syndrome. There's no Hunger Games Tracker Jacker Venom involved in this story. There's, there's nothing like that that makes Saul suggestible. Uh, nothing, none of the things that William Sargent says are, are, are necessary for making brainwashing. This is radical transformation. Jesus himself intervenes dramatically in Saul's life. Saul was not seeking him. He wasn't interested in him. He had no intention of honoring him or following him. No one could look at Saul's story and say, now there's a man who's going to be a Christian someday. It's just natural. No one would have thought that of Saul at all. You can see actually how some of that transformation takes place. Saul at the beginning is a gung-ho, active person. He's in charge. He's going to get letters. He's going to go persecute these Christians. He's moving himself. He's very active. Jesus appears to him, and Saul, what, becomes blind and passive and immobile for three days until Jesus tells him what to do and what's coming. Jesus has taken over Saul's life. Uh, again, let me refer to, to John Stott. Some of you, your experience of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ was very gentle and very subtle. Maybe you grew up in a home where you heard the gospel uh, over and over and over again. People would, uh, your parents would read the Bible to you and talk about Jesus as Savior. And your conversion was a very gentle and slow process. For some of you, though, it was more like this in Acts chapter 9, where uh, God takes a two-by-four to your head. He touched me. Oh. Listen to what John Stott said about his conversion, all right? This is what John Stott said. My faith is due to Jesus Christ himself, who pursued me relentlessly, even when I was running away from him in order to go my own way. And if it were not for the gracious pursuit, that's a great word. Phrase, gracious pursuit. Were it not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. Jesus intervenes. This is a conversion story. And I wonder, as I go through it, how it aligns with your story. There's three elements that I want you to see that this passage speaks about when it talks to us about conversion. Luke is trying to help us really understand what it means to turn and trust in the Lord Jesus. And here are three things that I want you to see. Number one, conversion involves a personal encounter with Jesus. Conversion involves a personal encounter with Jesus. We should be very clear what we are talking about when we talk about conversion. We are not talking about an emotional experience. 
we are not talking about a new moral resolve. I'm going to commit myself to doing something good. I'm going to give up the alcohol. I'm going to give up the uh, immorality. I'm going, to, I'm going to be morally reformed. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about an effort to join a congregation. Oh, I should be part of a church. I need to go be part of one. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about taking on yourself some great interest in religion or spirituality. That's not what the, that is not what is happening here. That's not what we mean when we talk about conversion. If all it took was a religious turn in order to be converted, Saul didn't need to be converted. He was one of the most religious men of his day. That's not an emphasis in this passage. It shows up elsewhere in the, the Bible when Paul talks about his own story. But Saul here was a Pharisee. It's a religious group within Judaism. They knew the Bible. They were committed to the Bible. In fact, if you walked around Palestine during this time and you said to anybody, hey, show me somebody who really knows God and is really following God, every person would point to a Pharisee and say, that guy right there, <laughs> he knows God. He's, he's more religious than any of us. You should see how he fasts and how he prays and how he tithes. That man, oh, that man is a religious, godly man. Saul fit in that category. It's odd. Saul also was, uh, verses 1 and 2, they tell us he was uh, an angry man. He was murderous. He was threatening. The words that are used here in, in, in Acts 9 are also used in the Old Testament to describe ravaging, raging beasts. Saul's a wild animal here. What I don't know is I don't know how Saul experienced this internal contradiction. How could Saul go to synagogue and, and, and recite or know the great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, how could he do that at the same time being arresting and, and voting for the execution of people? How did he handle that internal contradiction? Uh, maybe, maybe he just thought he was more zealous than other people. He's just a little bit more committed than the rest of people, rest of you Pharisees or you Jews who don't recognize how bad Jesus is. Uh, you know, at one point in time, actually, Jesus said to Saul, why are you kicking against the ox goads? That is, why are you resisting what you know to be true? There must have been this sense of turmoil in Saul. What his life tells us here is that you can be a very religious person and be very far from God. If what you believe is, is consistent with the Bible, your faith ought to make you a more compassionate person, a more gentle person, not an angry person. If what you read in the Bible, if your religion makes you self-righteous and makes you vain and isolates you from other people, what you believe is not consistent with the Bible. Now, verses 3 through 9, we read those are about this encounter that he has with the Lord Jesus. It's about noon, and a light appears. It is brighter than the sun at noon. In the Bible, whenever there is brightness like this, this is a manifestation of God's presence. He sees Jesus, and he speaks with Jesus, and this encounter with Jesus completely unravels his life. 
This is not the first time that Saul's heard of Jesus. You know what Saul knew about Jesus? Saul knew that Jesus was from Galilee. He pretended to be a rabbi. He had some followers. There were rumors about miracles. But in the end, Saul knew Jesus was executed for blasphemy. And executed means dead. He's dead. And he knew that there were people who claimed that he was alive. And there were, he knew there were people who claimed that he was the Messiah. But that's impossible. Saul would know that because no one who had ever hung on a cross could be the Messiah. Because to hang on the cross is to be cursed by God. And God's Messiah cannot be cursed. There is no way that Jesus can either be alive or be the Messiah. <laughs> and then Jesus appears to him. Alive. Speaking. And uh, so identifying himself with the people that Saul is trying to murder that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And this unravels Saul's life. He's been wrong. He has been completely wrong. He cannot possibly continue on the path that he's on. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard asks us to imagine a man who lived, uh, Soren Kierkegaard lived a couple hundred years ago, so let's put this man back there, in Europe in in a kingdom. This man lived in this kingdom, but his house was far from the palace, about as far in the kingdom as you could get. And he didn't have much to do with palace life. In fact, he was very poor. He was a farmer. He eked out his existence on his poor farm and in his little house, and he, he lived there. Didn't ever think he would see the king. In fact, he didn't really ever have an opportunity to to see the the king. One day, though, word comes to him. This man who lives so far out away from the palace. Word comes to him. The king says, uh, sends a herald and says to the man, I want you to come. And I want you to uh, come and live in the palace. And I want you to marry my daughter. And under the rules of this kingdom, that will make you the heir of the throne. You will be my son-in-law and you will be the heir of the throne. And the farmer is stunned by this. What an invitation. He's stunned, but the problem is life on the farm is really hard. It's backbreaking work. There's a lot of worries. What if the rain doesn't come? What if the crops don't grow? What if the chickens don't lay eggs? It's hard, but you know, there's parts of his life that he really likes. It's, it's somewhat comfortable. He likes being outside, working outside most of the time under the sun. He likes the solitude of the farm when when the day is over, that he can just be alone and he can sit in the meadow and enjoy the sunset and watch the fireflies. If you become the king's son-in-law, if you marry the king's daughter, you move into the palace and your life changes. Your identity is completely unraveled. Everything is going to change about this man. His occupation, his home, his friends, his lifestyle, his freedom. Marrying the king's daughter is a great promotion, but it's going to unravel his life. In fact, he thinks to himself, yeah, it, would, it would just be better if maybe the king, maybe two or three times a year, he could send a carriage down and pick me up and I could go visit him for a few days. And maybe, you know, life on the farm is hard. Maybe he could give me a servant or two to help me and work with me. And then I wouldn't have to, it wouldn't be so backbreaking. And maybe, maybe the king would, would um, 
Give me a, a bag or two of gold that I could just store away in case the crops don't grow or the chickens don't lay eggs. And I'd like to visit him every now and then and maybe have a really good meal, you know, for holidays, once at Christmas, once at Thanksgiving, once in the summer, you know. But it would be really good if he could just stay there and I could just stay here. Now, I wonder which one of those paths describes best how you think about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Is he someone you just want to come every now and then and give you a little help and a little boost and maybe have a nice warm meal with at some point in time? And if you get into trouble, he can rescue you. But for the most part, he can just leave you alone because your life is hard, but there's things about it that you like that you don't really want to lose. If you, if you go to the palace, it's over. All those little things that you, you, you love so much. Which one of those paths describes the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ? See, what Saul saw on the road to Damascus is a vision from which he never recovered. It unraveled his life. It changed his identity. It transformed everything about him. We looked at a passage a few weeks ago, uh, this passage, but I, and I wrote some more verses down from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 on the note sheet. And I want to look at them with you because I think Saul here is writing about what it means, or Paul later, is writing about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I think he's still thinking about the Damascus road here, even in 2 Corinthians 4. See if you think so. Look at what it says. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Why was Saul blinded on the road to Damascus? I think he was blinded because he is experiencing physically what has been true of him spiritually, that he cannot see the glory of Christ. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Doesn't that sound like Acts 9? Um, look here at verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have this treasure in jars of clay. That word jar is the same word that's used in Acts 9.15 when, when Jesus says to Ananias, Saul is my chosen instrument, he's my chosen jar. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And then look at 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our light and momentary troubles. Do you remember Saul's suffering was part of his commission? He's going to suffer our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Saul saw the unseen Christ, and he knew that he was eternal. It's a vision he never recovered from. Now, I think the fullness of this vision is unique to what happened to Saul. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I was the last one to see the risen Christ. But we still see him here in a spiritual sense. By faith, 
If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it is because of your encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. You have seen him in the sense that you understand who he is. He's God's son. He's our savior. And you understand what he has done. He has come and he lived the life that we should have lived perfectly before God. We don't live that way. And he died the death that we deserve to die on the cross as in our place as our substitute bearing the penalty for our sins. And he rose again. And seeing him calls forth faith. It, it compels confident trust. You look at him and you say, Oh Lord Jesus, you are the Savior. I want you for my Savior. That's the sight that saves. I have this little program on my phone and uh, it, it, it comes from a, a company, an editor somewhere in the world. Uh, finds pictures. It's called Amazing Things in the World. Finds these, these cool pictures, and, and, and every now and then I, I, I'll flip through these pictures and look at them. Uh, this past week I was uh, flipping through for a few minutes, and there was a picture of a, a Greek village. It was made with white stone, and it was this village on top of a mountain. And underneath the mountain there was a valley, and down below was the, uh, the beautiful blue sea. And I saw this picture, and I thought, oh, I want to go there. Then next to it, there was this picture of, of, of uh, um, uh, a woman, and she was, she was in South America, and there was this outcrop of rock in one of the mountains of the Andes, and she was doing a handstand in this outcrop of rock, and beneath her, hundreds of feet below, was the valley floor, and there was a village, and I looked at it, and I thought to myself, oh, get off of there! <laughs> oh, I wouldn't stand on my feet on that ledge, and there she is standing on her hands. <laughs> I flipped it again, and there was a picture. It must have been old. I, I think it was, it was a black and white picture, and it was a baby elephant, and it was standing on a, a railroad car, a flatbed railroad car, and there was a little girl who had the trunk of this elephant in her hand, and she was trying to help the baby elephant down, and, and he was kind of on the edge of this, this railroad car trying to decide if he could make it down. And I looked at that, and I went, aww. You see these things, and they elicit a response Saul saw the Lord Jesus and it changed him. It called for faith in his life. Seeing you, I trust in you. I turn to you as the object of my confidence and my allegiance. He never recovered from this. I wonder if you have seen Jesus like that. Maybe one of the things that I can do today to serve you is to remind you that this is the Lord Christ that we serve. This is what He looks like. This is who He is. He is that glorious. We really do believe all the songs that we sing at this time of year. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as men with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Oh, come, the wisdom that's from on high and order all things far and nigh to us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to go. Son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus is Lord at his birth. We really have this incomparable Savior who is full of glory and seeing Him, encountering Him, will unravel 
your life, transform you. Now, let's move on here. This is, that's the first element in the conversion story. The other two we'll, we'll cover more briefly. Uh, secondly here, what does conversion mean? Conversion involves a transformation from enemy to servant. A transformation from enemy to servant. Um, notice how it takes these believers, all of them in this passage, time to accept that Saul is actually uh, no longer their enemy. You can understand why that would be. Uh, look at verse uh, 13 again. Ananias says, I've heard about this man and all he's done. He's come to arrest us. You want me to go and, and pray for him? Well, look down there in verse 20. He began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And everybody who heard him said, Really? Who is this guy? He's, our, he's the enemy of Christians. He's not their friend. Or uh, verse uh, 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him. He, he's their enemy. What? He can't be their friend. Now, it, it's worth for just a moment talking about a little bit of the chronology of this passage because Luke uses this word, this phrase, and it's confusing. Two of them, actually, he uses this phrase uh, in verse 19, he says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And then in verse 23, it says, after many days had gone by. Well, many days, as best we can tell, put together from the New Testament, actually is about three years. <laughs> That's a lot of days. So what happens, it seems like, if we put Galatians 1 together with this story, is that Paul, Saul starts preaching in the city of Damascus, and from Damascus he begins doing missions trips out into Arabia. And it's described in Galatians chapter 1 for us. Well, maybe he's not doing missions trips. Maybe what he's doing is going out for solitude and study. That's, some people think that that's true. The reason I don't think that's true is because in 2 Corinthians 11, it says that the king of Arabia, a man who ruled over this area, wanted Saul dead and he was going to do it in the city of Damascus. So I, I think if he was just on a study tour of Arabia, he wouldn't incite the, that opposition from the king. Well... So for three years, Saul goes from Damascus to Arabia doing ministry as he travels. Damascus is his headquarters. And after three years, then, he goes down into Jerusalem. That's the, 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 um, the chronology here. Why does he leave Damascus? Of course, because he had to. He was lowered in a basket to flee the city. You can see these themes coming together in Saul's life. There's the glory he saw, the service that he did, and the suffering that he encountered. All these things propel Paul, move Paul. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, um, you have experienced the same call to serve. Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the fruit of conversion, this new orientation towards serving others. I'm so grateful, and I, I get to say this a lot, I'm grateful for the number of people who recognize this new call and this new orientation in our church. Um, you have very busy lives, and you fit already into your busy lives, your crowded lives, spaces to serve others. You stay up late to read through Sunday school books, or you get up early to read through them and prepare them. Or... Um, on Sundays, you wear clothes, you pick out your clothes based on how you're serving during the day, whether it's here in the auditorium or you pick out the most spit-up proof outfit you have to go into the nursery. 
You practice music during the week so that you, you know it and can lead. You, you make phone calls because you sit in the room and you look around and you see, oh, I haven't seen this person in a long time. I don't know where they are. I'm going to give them a call and see what they're doing. You notice upcoming birthdays. There's nobody in our church who has a birthday that doesn't receive at least one card from somebody who's part of our congregation. There is this new orientation from enemy to servant. I, I suppose this new orientation is, uh, um, actually relates to the third element of conversion. Conversion involves, number three, a new connection to God's people. A new connection to God's people. It is necessary for Saul to attach himself to his fellow believers. It happens in Damascus and it happens in Jerusalem. In fact, God affirms it and, and, and makes it happen. How does he do it? Why didn't, couldn't he have, I asked the question, Saul's blind, he's sitting in Damascus. Couldn't he, God have sent an angel? He could have. Couldn't the Lord Jesus appeared again to Saul and, and commissioned him and, and given him his sight? Could have, could have. But instead, God sends this man, Ananias. And Ananias goes and pronounces over Saul what must have been sweet, sweet words. Brother Saul. You are not my enemy anymore. You're now my family member, brother Saul. Saul was baptized following his faith, as it should be. I'm a happy Baptist. Reading the book of Acts, the way it's written. That's why there was a waterless praying for the babies this morning. So Paul's, uh, uh, Saul is, is uh, uh, baptized, and then he joins the disciples. In Jerusalem, it's not Ananias who comes to him. It's Barnabas who comes to him and draws Saul in. He has a new family. Saul has a new regiment with which he's going to fight. He has new comrades who are going to protect him. I wonder, as I read this story about myself and I wonder about you, if you are uniting yourself to someone who, if necessary, would lower you in a basket to get out of town. If somebody who, who could call up and say, hey, you need to go. I don't anticipate that happening um, right now, at least in our country, that, that you have to flee because you've named the name of Christ or because of how aggressively you're preaching. Um, but I wonder if you're gathering around people like that who, who, who you could call under those circumstances, who would get you out of town if they're threatening to, to, to kill you. I think it's, that's part of gathering those people around you. It's part of what Soren Kierkegaard meant when he was talking about our new identity. We, we cultivate that new identity when we gather together on Sunday mornings and we sing and we say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. The reason that we sing so that we can hear one another sing, so the congregational voice is the most important part of our singing, is so that we can hear and encourage one another with this truth. Jesus is Lord and we're united together as followers of Christ in that so that if I call you, you'll bring your basket to my house. We're going to spend several months, several months with Saul over the, the next um, uh, year. 
Luke is going to call him by his Greco-Roman last name. We'll talk about him as Paul uh, more often than Saul. Saul's going to do amazing things. He's going to demonstrate great grace. He's going to do miracles. He's going to preach with outstanding courage. And he's going to suffer. And all of that started here in this passage where it starts for us all. Russell Moore, one more time, I'm going to quote him. For too long, we've called unbelievers to invite Jesus into your life. Jesus doesn't want to be in your life. Your life's a wreck. Jesus calls you into his life. And his life isn't boring or purposeless or static. It's wild and exhilarating and unpredictable and full of glory. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you uh, that we pray and speak to a risen Lord. Father, how thankful we are for this encounter that um, your son, uh, he appeared to Saul and unraveled his life. Saul, by his own testimony, the most undeserving person on the planet, you rescued him. Lord, there's, there's people in the congregation for whom this, this story reminds them of their own. They were running away from you uh, as far and as fast as they could, and you intervened, you interrupted, you rescued. I, I'm grateful to you for those men and women in this room who that is the, the, their story of how they became followers of Jesus. By your grace, you gracious, you, Lord Jesus, who graciously pursue us. How thankful we are. Father, I'm also mindful of the fact that there are uh, men and women who are a part of our congregation today for whom this story seems alien and strange, this encounter with the Lord Jesus. Lord, I, I pray that you would by your spirit, open their blind eyes so that they can see the glory of Christ. And seeing the glory of Christ and hearing it in the message of the gospel, they would believe. Lord, we pray these things because um, it's part of the role that you have given us, the calling that you've given us to testify about Jesus to the ends of the earth. Lord, how grateful we are that you called this man, this angry blasphemer, to yourself. You can save anyone. And so we pray that you would do that work of saving through us by the words that we say and the things that we sing and the things that we do for your glory. Thank you that we call one another brother and sister because Jesus is our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.